Hi, and welcome to Back to Excited, episode 32. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionTanPuppets.com, Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. We are almost at the start of the regular season, Fooleman. It is exciting. I know. There's been so much buildup in foreplay, and now we're finally ready to... Foreplay was a poor choice of words. This metaphor is going to be a little yeah. sexual for daytime television. There's been a lot of preliminary... Act- now it all sounds sexual. You know what? The regular season is starting. That's a good thing to have happen. <laughs> yes. The preseason is finally over, or close to be over. The Leafs, we're recording this on a Saturday. Uh, the Leafs have their last preseason game today against Detroit, in Detroit. Uh, they are not really playing anyone who looks to be a meaningful NHL contributor. Nope. Uh, With the it's possible exception a- of the goalies, I guess? Yeah, c- conceivably. It's, it's going to be mostly an AHL matchup, which is fine. Uh, yeah. The Leafs iced what is approximately their opening night lineup, give or take, on Friday night, and they kind of dynamited the Red Wings. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed yeah, that thoroughly. Yeah, actually, maybe we can, we can discuss the game briefly, because it'll feed into our, our first planned discussion, which is our um, who, who, what we think the lineup is going to be like uh, come next Wednesday. And yeah, I mean, I thought the Leafs played well. It was nice to see them actually carry play at even strength against what is a bad team, but Mm-hmm. You know, you got to beat up on bad teams as well. Um, but obviously the most striking thing and what everyone's talking about is just the explosion of goals that the Leafs had on special teams. They had a five-on-three goal, a five-on-four goal, a shorthanded goal um, they, on quick su- succession to just completely blow the game wide open. Yeah, like it seems increasingly clear that the Leafs power play, which was already very deadly, but they're overloading the top unit now. Uh, I don't see any reason for that unit not to just absolutely shred the nhl Um, yeah it's gonna be a good unit and i mean i've seen some comments on like reddit and elsewhere it's like oh you give it a couple months teams will adjust and i'm sure they will find ways to slow them down but the hard thing about stopping that unit is that they have a million different options right and because you know by definition the team that is playing shorthanded is literally shorthanded they have one less player they you cannot cover everyone Mm-hmm. So, right? That's that's basically it. Power plays are hard to defend. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of a function of like that. That's how it works. So I think that group is going to be really strong, pretty much throughout. And I mean, one similarity that I guess we should touch on between the two games were mostly the NHL roster play, the one in Montreal and then the one versus Detroit. The Leafs have the capability to just blow games wide open and just. Even when they're not playing well, as we saw in Montreal, they can. They have so many players who can just break a game with some ridiculous play. And on in Montreal, it was Mitch Marner primarily doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it could be any of Matthews, Marner, Tavares, uh, Nylander when he gets back. And then you get guys like Kadri and Riley and Gardner, who also are you know strong offensive players in their own right. It's very hard to bottle them up entirely because they don't even have to be playing well necessarily. They just need one moment of magic, and then boom, it's a goal. And it can spiral really, really quickly. Yeah, I saw a tweet to the effect that, like, the Leafs were playing quite badly for long stretches against the Montreal Canadiens, and it did not matter. Uh, If they ever play well, like, if these Leafs can be, like, a 52% shot share team, they will contend for the President's Trophy. Like, the level of shooting talent on display is so strong. And uh, we now have... uh, I kind of wonder... Uh, if this is going to be a thing, but we sure look like we're going to be one of the deadliest shorthanded teams that the NHL has to offer. Like we're yeah. using John I mean, Tavares as hard, like a hard to say 
for sure, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mitch Marner certainly has the capacity to do that. So does Kapanen. It's all just wonderful and fun. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is definitely us that are most optimistic. It's There aren't too many things wrong if you're a Leafs fan right now. Things are going pretty well. And for sure, there's going to be turbulence throughout the season. The Leafs are not going to keep... There's going to be times where um, the Leafs are not going to shoot as hot as they have through the first couple games of the preseason or through the through the games of the preseason where we've actually had the entire roster mm-hmm. and against good teams like boston and tampa it's certainly a far less enticing strategy to be like hey yeah just let them do whatever we'll just score on them at some point right like yeah. <laughs> i don't really want to do that against a good team i don't really want to do that against a bad team but it's somewhat viable against a bad team yeah like just kind of coast through score a couple times when you feel like it and then you know win four three or whatever but uh Certainly, they're more capable of doing that than Leafs teams that have tried to do that the last couple of years. You know, the Leafs have been running gun the whole way, and now they're just the final stage of running and gunning. Yeah, it's like uh, when Allen was on the podcast uh, a little while ago, he said basically the Leafs have kind of leaned into their strength, and that's, I think that's very accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's going to go along. How, their success is going to be kind of a referendum in some sense for how how far you can go leaning into kind of a very... Uh, obviously defensively <laughs> porous yeah. uh, group. Yeah. I, I mean, if there's been a, a little bit of a concern, it's like, defensively, that riley Hainsey pairing, I don't I don't have a good feeling about that at all. Yeah. I, riley and Hainsey have not been great in the preseason anyways. I, and, you know, part of that, Hainsey's 37. He doesn't mm-hmm. have to try in the preseason. Like, I mean, no. we even said it before. Just, just chill out and get ready for the real thing. Don't it, die. Yeah, but it's still such an obvious problem, and just the Leafs' defense and their defensive play still has not really looked that good through no. the preseason. Like it's it's not as if they've been stifling teams. There have been chances, and it's it, it seems like it's kind of more of the same. And I know a lot of us were kind of hoping for oh maybe Babcock will solve the breakouts thing, but it's not such a simple problem, and a lot of it does come down to the personnel as well. It doesn't look like there's a magic bullet for it, at least so far. No. These are the Super Leafs, but they're recognizably the same team as last year with a significant upgrade. Yeah. Um, Which is, you know, worse things have happened. But the Lions looked like they're probably going to look, notwithstanding Zach Hyman will come back and William Nylander is going to sign, we assume. Yeah. Um, so let's actually let's let's go through um, what we think our, the rosters are going to be, and I imagine ours will be very very similar because there is not really that much room for judgment here. So yeah, you yeah. can go ahead. Okay, so there was some experimenting uh, on Friday, which, despite my status as a Zach Hyman booster, I did not hate. But uh, Mike Babcock tried Kasperi Kapanen, John Tavares, and Mitch Marner as a line. That's a hell of a line. It was but, fun. Kapanen played well. Yeah, and you know what? I wouldn't be averse to giving that some more play and then mm-hmm. running a cadre line that was something like, once Leonard gets back, you have Tyler Ennis, Nazem Kadri, and Zach Hyman, because Zach Hyman is naturally a right shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that could be interesting. I'll be interested to see if uh, Mike Babcock does it. He likes Hyman as kind of a digger to play with uh, an offensive center. And thus far in Hyman's career with the Leafs, that's how he's been used. So he would be kind of putting him more into the defensive role, but something to keep an eye on. Notwithstanding that, yeah. That's something where Kaplan would really have to, like, show up and take that job. Yeah. 
he started by force. Yeah. You know, last week we were talking about we weren't that impressed with his early returns. He's looked better this week. Absolutely. Uh, and so I think he's coming into his own more. He's certainly going to be a middle middle six player, at least, for the Toronto Maple Leafs, so that's good. Uh, Marlowe, Matthews, and then Ennis for now, Nylander for later. That seems kind of set in stone, and I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, Josh Levo, God bless him. You know, I said he was kind of dead and buried in the Leafs organization. Yeah. And it's looked like he's kind of gotten a reprieve because, again, Nylander isn't there. So that opens up a spot for Ennis on the top line. Ennis being moved up opens up a spot for Levo on the Kadri line. And right now he's got it. And he's looked good offensively, for sure. He's had his moments. He's had some points. Mike Babcock seemed to sort of grudgingly acknowledge that, like, (laughs) he was going to play Josh Levo. But I still don't know that that's going to be a permanent thing uh, as soon as Nylander gets back. So my expectation is Levo probably gets bumped back down. Yeah. And then you have a fourth line of... Wait, who else was on the Kadri line, though? Oh, well... (laughs) Connor Brown. (laughs) Which is, you know... Again, I think we've we've talked probably a lot about that. And uh, he's been fine. Um, He's been Connor Brown. Yeah, he continues to be Connor Brown with remarkable consistency. And then the fourth line is Janssen, Lindholm, and um, actually I'm forgetting who cycles in on Kapanen. the Kapanen, right, at different points. Goche was there for a bit, which was friggin' weird. <laughs> um, I, look, I, I'm just trying to block that out of my mind. Like, I, <laughs> there, there are so few players who I enjoy watching less than Frederick Gauthier. Because, yeah, he's, like, he's just not an NHL player. He's slow. Yeah. He's not... For a big guy, he loses so many puck battles. It's just nice guy, but he's... It's it's not there. It, it, it seems very clear. Um, I think he's down to the AHL again. And at some point, I feel a little bad for Gauthier because he apparently could have gotten into Harvard. So I hope maybe he starts thinking about another career well like, no he, he, he's, he's for sure like an ahl player right like you'll have a lot of careers in age other oh yeah sure but then you know with a lot of ahlers it's like you look around at age 31 or whatever and then you're like yeah. okay what am i gonna do now yeah a harvard um, well if, if, he, if he stayed the full year or and got the degree at harvard that would probably go a long way in his post playing career yeah. but i mean he if he's a, he's a bright guy and if you're a bright guy who's especially a, a canadian and you play <laughs> hockey like, you will probably find a job somewhere in hockey later. Yeah, it's almost like the old boys club is an employment network for a lot of guys <laughs> like this. Which Yeah, which, I mean, whatever. I mean, Goche seems like a good guy. Yeah, in general, don't. it's nepotistic, but I don't wish him any ill. So anyway, yeah. but like, that's not going to be a thing. I don't even think that he's really legitimate press box fodder. I mean, it's nice to have a center that you can bring along on road trips. If someone gets hurt, you can slot someone in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, we haven't been seeing it from Gautier. I'd rather have, you know, even Adam Cracknell, although Cracknell looks like he's going down too. But the yeah. Leafs can restructure their lineup in a pinch to put someone else to center and bring in a wing. I, I think so that that's not happening. Yeah, so, yeah. So basically there are your lines. And then on defense you have, same as it ever was, Riley Hainsey and then Gardner Zaitsev, which I worry I'm trying to talk myself into Gardner Zaitsev looking better. I don't know if that's, 
Is that real? Does that seem real to you? Like, have they looked oh. better in preseason? Like, I think that they've, they've been improving, but... They've looked exactly the same to me. Yeah? To okay. To be totally honest. Like, yeah, Zaitsev looked exactly the same. Yeah, I, I just, I want to believe so badly that that's going to work out, but... Um, and then Travis Dermott is going to be third pair left defense. It looks pretty clear that Igor Ziganov is going to win the third pair right defense job, almost by default. But, um, because no one has really taken it from him. Yeah, yeah, and they said this on the TSN broadcast yesterday and, and against Montreal, too. It's that, no, it's not as if anyone has claimed that third pair right defense job, it's just people have lost it. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, it's not an incredibly, um, exciting training camp battle. But yeah, I, I pretty much agree across the board there. I think Osaganov is comfortably has the trust of Babcock in that role as of right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I guess that's kind of the lineup. There's not that much to discuss there. Goalies, obviously Anderson is going to start. And I think it could still go either way on whether McElhaney or Sparks will be the backup. If Babcock was making the decisions, I'm fairly confident it'd be McElhaney. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Dubas has said many times that, you know, ultimately I'm the one who chooses the roster and then Mike deploys them as he sees fit so he he's within his rights to say no we're going to keep sparks for you know all the reasons that, and these reasons have been enumerated many times elsewhere right he's younger he has a very good ahl track record he really has nothing to prove at that level um whereas mclaney is certainly in the twilight of his career uh there's always this prevailing sense that the last few years have been fool's gold with mclaney given mm-hmm. his career trajectory up until then but yeah i mean the Leafs lineup is pretty much set at this point. Yeah, it, it seems clear. Excepting the backup goalie question, which, by the way, was well written up uh, at The Athletic today by Ian Tullock, mm-hmm. front of me of the blog. But um, really, it, it does look like that's where we're going. Connor Carrick has, I think, probably brought his Leafs career close to an end. The rumor is that he's being shopped in trades. He's a yeah. little overpriced for a third pair defenseman. He makes one point three million, but I, I feel like that's the kind of thing that can be worked around. One, it's not that much money, and two, the Leafs can retain if they really want to let him yeah. go. Uh, in the meantime, you know he's there in the press box, and if a trade doesn't offer itself, maybe he gets back in after an injury or something like that. But like, that seems to be done. So that's it. Yeah, P- pretty much. I mean. Uh... Carrick is he's an interesting player and I, I think again we touched on him before so we probably don't need to go into it in a lot of detail but mm-hmm. it, it seems clear that Babcock sees him as a fringe NHL player and given the rest of the Leafs uh talents on on the back end where you really don't need Carrick at all for any sort of power play duties or anything like that like you know it's not he doesn't provide so much that Babcock feels that he has to play him so I mean that's just kind of the way it works. Uh, doesn't yeah. look like Carrick is going to feature much in the future. No. I did like one thing, and Katja pointed this out, but Mike Babcock said, like, Carrick has to learn to kill penalties. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Babcock never uses them on the penalty kill. Yeah. So so it's sort of like, that seems a lot like, get out of my face. You know what I mean? Like, when you set a standard that you're not really interested in, and using him to meet because you don't think he's up for it. 
Yeah. That really seems like the book is closed. And Carrick also said that he and Babcock haven't had much to talk about this training mm-hmm. camp. Like, all of the signs are bye. Um, so, yeah. But, like, this is an exciting team. This is... It was one thing to see it on paper and talk about it as we did over the summer. But even in preseason, like, just an electric offensive group, chance after chance after chance. When they look good, they look like the best team I've had the privilege of watching in a Leafs uniform. When they look bad, they can still win. And they did win every preseason game where they iced an NHL-ish roster. So, yeah, pretty exciting. Yeah, um... But as as we alluded to before, these are still the same Leafs, and it's, <laughs> you know we we still see times where it's like these guys need breadcrumbs and a map to get out of their own zone. <laughs> yeah, they can look so good, and then for stretches look so bad that you're like, surely this ought to be rectifiable. Surely with the skill on this roster, you could figure out how to stop a cycle, and you know purportedly that's what Nikita Zaitsev does, but. Other times, they look so dominant. I mean, I guess every team looks better when it's on offense, obviously. But yeah, I, I do wonder if the disparity is as sharp with other teams as it is with the Leafs in terms of being so threatening and then so kind of baffled when teams run the ring around them. But yeah, uh, we'll see. It, it, can make, it can make for like a frustrating watch because like you'll see the Leafs uh, play like awful for... 10 minutes just they can't do anything and then they'll go down like they have four great chances in a row and maybe one of them will go in it's like you don't deserve that guys don't you don't don't feel happy <laughs> yeah right goals like, against I, the flow of the play the toronto yeah, maple leaf yeah, story yeah the times. leafs are going to lead the league in goals against the run of play yeah <laughs> it's like it, it's almost annoying to watch like against montreal i was like mildly annoyed when they scored it's like ugh, they, they don't need they don't need to be rewarded for this like really turgid display no and I mean, the, the Canadians are a Claude Julien team, which means lots of shot attempts that aren't necessarily as dangerous as they should be. Yeah, like, and the the, Can- they're they're going to play a system and execute it well. Like, even last year, the Canadians were not, uh, until the wheels really fell off, they were not like a terrible shot uh, attempts team. They were, they were pretty yeah. decent at it. No, and, and you know, and they are, I think, well coached, although I was really convinced that Claude Julien was going to do a lot for that team. And then he came in and they just sucked. Yeah. So I, I've had to revise that a little bit, but I do think that they are systemically a good team. Yeah. And, and so some of that's to be expected, whereas the Leafs just, they're going to leaf. Mm. You know, they can contend doing this. I have no doubt. Uh, I, I'm kind of just accepting it now that certain things are not going to be ever fixed to my satisfaction. And yeah, just sit back and enjoy the ride. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, okay, um, so is there anything else you wanted to discuss regarding the Leafs and the roster decisions to be made about them? Uh, I suppose just I, I will weigh in very briefly on the backup thing. Mm-hmm. If it were up to me, I would keep Garrett Sparks up. I would Same wave here. Cur- yeah, I would wave Curtis McElhinney. I would wave Calvin Pickard. I expect Curtis McElhinney has a pretty decent chance of being claimed just because his last two seasons have been so good, and that's the risk you take. But I think that I would like to see Garrett Sparks. All of that said, a lot of people are quite convinced that he has, like, strong starter potential. And I'm pretty skeptical of that. Maybe this is just, like, innate caution. But at the same time, I think he has the most potential of the three guys who are competing for the job. So that kind of decides it for me. I just, 
I won't be that upset if the decision goes the other way. As we've said, if Babcock has his way, it'll probably be McElhinney that stays up and Sparks that goes down. Yeah, but. I pretty much agree with all that. Like, like you say, given the choice, I would keep Sparks just for all the reasons that have been mentioned here and elsewhere. Age, uh, the fact that he has such a strong track record in the AHL at a relatively young age. Um, he he He's legitimately good. Um, or not legitimately good, but like, you, it's not unrealistic to think that he can be a good NHL backup and then potentially maybe a little more. Mm-hmm. Right? There, um, there is that not, chance there. Yeah, it's not completely, you know, pants on head stupid. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that a lot of people like Garrett Sparks. They like what he brings. He's hard on his sleeve. I do think that maybe temperamentally as a backup, he might not always be the best but you know if you can play you can play is the end end of the yeah. story there yeah. um so yeah i have another topic that i'm gonna rant about now that i'm on a roll okay <laughs> um because someone asked about this actually we had a uh, a commenter on twitter uh who who said can you address why this isn't gonna happen so people have been talking about I believe it was Nick Kiprios, who is usually a found of not great ideas. But they're talking about the risk of uh, Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner being off-resheated next summer. Uh, particularly by Lou Lamorello, who is, you know, presumably mad at us because we took John Tavares from him. And, you know, we also didn't let him stay in his job and instead we took Kyle Dubas. I don't know. There's a bit of like a... Shakespearean revenge thing going on there, I guess, is the theory. First of all, again, offer sheets don't really happen anymore. Like, as a rule, your default stance on offer sheets should be, I'll believe it when I see it, and I'm not going to see it, because the last one that was actually signed was 2013. Uh, secondly, the Leafs are going to match. They will move heaven and earth to match if it comes to that. Uh, Marner and Matthews are central players. It's too critical to the future of this franchise not to let them go. Three, um, the pick price to offer sheet Matthews or Marner would be immense. Like, if you're signing them to a competitive offer, you're probably giving them, like, $9 million plus million, which means you're likely giving up four first-round picks. A team that is tanking would really have to think about that, especially for Mitch Marner, like, whether it's really going to be worth it. I think you'd still do it for Austin Matthews, who's a near generational player. But even then, that's another disincentive. Uh, the next thing is that the player has to sign. Like, it's not enough to make a contract offer. Um, you know, the player actually has to agree to it. Uh, William Nylander, for example, has been moved around on the internet as a target for offer sheets, and his agent has said repeatedly, we're not interested in that, we're not pursuing that, we want to play in Toronto. And absent any other evidence, I would assume the same about Matthews and Marner. Um, basically all of that together suggests that even if it gets to next summer, it's not that likely. They're probably going to extend both of those players in advance of that, I expect. Like, they're going to lo lock Matthews up pretty quickly when they can. And finally, Lou Lamorello, for all his rule-bending and ingenious trickery, to my knowledge, has never issued an offer sheet to anybody. And he's had a long career in which to do it. Now, uh, someone can correct me if I'm wrong. Offer sheets used to be more common, and the notes that I reviewed only went back so far. 
but basically I'm not worried about this at all. That was my very brief rant on why offer sheets are not something that anyone needs to worry about. That was much less unhinged than I was hoping for. I was hoping for like some yelling, you know, some intense screaming, maybe some tears. You know what? The subtext about this is that I've kind of wanted offer sheets to make a comeback for like yeah. 10 years. And yeah. now all of a sudden I'm like, no, actually offer sheets are bad. Because <laughs> uh, so suddenly we would be the victims rather than uh, the issuers of offer sheets. But the reality is like, it's not a thing. So sleep yeah. easy on the offer sheet front. Yeah, absolutely. There, I don't think there's really a ton to be worried about there at all. Yeah. That does set up another thing though, mm-hmm. which is we're talking about Mitch Marner not signing an offer sheet, which is a contract. But he is going to need a contract from us. We're going to have to issue him something competitive. Either, I mean, starting now, we could sign him tomorrow if we felt like it, and he felt like it. Mm-hmm. But before next season, and that's been a topic of some discussion after the preseason. Yeah, it has. I mean, so there's been some people saying, oh, man, like, seeing how well Marner has played in preseason, and he has been absolutely phenomenal. People mm-hmm. have been commenting, oh, man, at least we need to get him signed up as soon as possible. I mean, if you're Marner's agent, you're not signing anything right now. No. Right? Like, what, what is the point? Uh, unless the Leafs drastically overpay you, you're going to have... Like, yes, you, you have some security, but barring a catastrophic injury, Marner is in about as perfect a situation as you could possibly be for a young player going into a contract year. Mm-hmm. He's playing on a high-powered offensive team with a lot of publicity. He's playing next to a star center. He's on the first unit power play, and more than that, he is the playmaker on the first unit power play. Marner is in a perfect situation to put up a lot of points. Now, that's yeah. also led to people commenting about, oh man, like, do the Leafs actually have a, will the Leafs have a problem affording Mitch Marner? Because look at how good he's been. And, you know, if he puts up 100 points, 90 points or something like that, like, just goes absolutely mental, can the Leafs still afford him? Okay, so there's a couple of things I want to address here. One, if, the, if Marner puts up 100 points, who, like, who cares about his contract? The Leafs have another 100 <laughs> point forward. Yeah, pay him whatever he wants. Yeah. We'll, we'll take him. If, we, if that means we have to trade, I don't know, if that means we have to cap dump Zach Hyman, if that means we have to cap dump Connor Brown or give up Kisbury Kaplan, whatever, that means we have another 100 point player, we are fine. We will move heaven and earth to keep the 100 point player at that point. Right? That's that's not an issue. No. no. Um, but more generally, people are saying, oh, Marner could get, be could, could command something like $10 million. And look, while I think that's possible, I think there's, I think this is a bit of an overreaction, right? Um, everyone kind of universally agrees that preseason doesn't matter. And then a player has a really good preseason, and they're like, oh my god, this guy could make so much money, so <laughs> good. And it's like, yeah, Marner is amazing. He is absolutely phenomenal. He will probably do incredible things this year but before he before we worry about the situation of oh wow what if marner goes absolutely mental we have to pay him 10 million let's wait till he does something that's worthy of 10 million dollars right marner had a strong year last year he had right around 70 points um and you can see the argument for saying okay well marner had 70 points last year he was 20 he's going to improve a little bit and now he's playing with john Tavares. he could easily get 80 85 90 and I think that undersells how difficult it is to go from 70 points to 80 or 90 points, right? Like, that that's actually a huge jump because that's the jump from incredibly good to very best in the game. So 
like with Marner, a lot of things went right for him last year. His power play scoring was one of uh, the 10 best years in terms of power play scoring by any player in the last five years or so. Now, Marner is legitimately very good on the power play, and the Leafs appear to have a strong power play this year, but you can't guarantee that he's going to get another top 10 all-time, or top 10 uh, power play year in the last five years, right? Even Alexander Ovechkin doesn't have more than one or two of the top 10, right? And he's probably the best power play player of the last decade. Things things can go wrong. Let's wait until, let's like chill a little bit. Let's wait till Marner actually does put up 90 points or something before we get too carried away with how he's looked this preseason and what that means for the Leafs cap situation going forward. Ultimately, if Marner explodes, that's a good thing for the Leafs. He'll still be an RFA if the Leafs have to pay him more than we currently expect to. And I'm expecting something in the range of like seven high sevens, low eights at this point, because I expect him to get around 75, 80 points, thereabouts. Um, if the Leafs have to pay him more than that, they'll pay him more than that. We'll cut elsewhere. But it, it just means that Marner is worth more than we thought, and he'll be an amazing player. Yeah, which is, you know, these are the epitome of first world problems. Like, yeah. Uh, and again, he is a restricted free agent. It's very rare that a team loses one of its core best RFAs uh, because they can't afford them. Yeah. You know, there are, are situations where teams, you know, have been really capped out. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks lost uh, Brandon Saad for a bit. But, um, you know, by and large, teams manage to hang on to those players. The question of can Mitch Marner become a 90-point player is kind of interesting. Uh, you and I were talking about this before we went on air, but prior to this season, there basically weren't 90-point players. Yeah. Like, so, it was Connor McDavid and nobody. Yeah, and, I mean, Fulman isn't exaggerating there. In in 2016-2017, one player got a, a more than 90 points. It was Connor McDavid with 100. The next highest was Sidney Crosby with 89, and Patrick Kane also with 89. The year before, 2015-16, how many players were there with above uh, 90 points? One, Patrick Kane with 106. The next highest was Jamie Benn with 89. 2014-15, like you can keep going down the list. 2014-15, Jamie Benn had 87 points. He led the league. That was the most points. Um, or sorry, yeah, that was that was the year where it was a very low-scoring year in terms of the Art Ross. It was one of the weaker Art Ross races in, in recent NHL history. Going back to 2013-2014, Sidney Crosby had 104 points. Next highest guy, Ryan gets off with 87. Exactly. John Tavares, as good as he is, has never hit 90 points. His highest is 86. So, like, yes, Mitch Marner can hit 90 points, but that's that's like a 95th percentile outcome for him. You know, like that's him with everything going right, with him reaching his full potential. Yes, he can do that. It's not something I would say is terribly likely. Right, And if you are going to argue for it, I think the argument has to be that last year in the NHL, there were actually nine 90-point uh, scorers. And you could see Marner breaking into the top 10 in league scoring or something like that. The reason that happened was because power plays are getting more and more successful. And there were more power plays last year with the crackdown on slashing. Now, we've seen that before in the wake of the 2004 lockout, where for a couple of years, penalties really went up and that, that juiced scoring. And then referees slowly just became more uh, tolerant of hacking and slashing and obstruction and all that sort of thing. The same thing could very well happen here. If Marner, if the league doesn't continue in the high uh, 
offense environment of last year, if it reverts to what we'd seen for the four or five years prior, then saying Mitch Marner is a 90-point player is saying he is one of the three or four best scorers in the league. That is really, 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 really unlikely. Yeah. And then if it's true, guess what? We have, you know, two or three franchise players. Yeah. Then which, like, we're, we're happy either way, right? Yeah. It's just, I think with Marner, people need to keep some perspective of, you know, what is realistic here. Um, and, and frankly, it's not that realistic that he's going to explode for, explode to be one of, you know, the 10 best scorers in the league this season. It, it's possible, yeah. but it's not something I would, I would put money on. So basically, the moral of this is, like, chill out about worrying about Mitch Marner's contract. Yeah, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I do find it interesting, uh, the increase in power play efficiency we're talking about. Last year, the league average power play scored a little over 20% of the time. And it was actually the most that it's been since 1990. Like, teams are getting better at structuring the power play. Like, there's been a move to four forward, one defenseman setups instead of three forwards and two defensemen. Uh, yeah, I think everyone is increasingly recognizing that that's more efficient. So it mm-hmm. is worth keeping an eye on. Like, is there going to be a new normal where there are more 90-point forwards? Even so, like, it's a really, really best-case scenario. We can, you know, talk about it credibly. Like, there is a... I think there's probably more chance of it than you do, maybe. But I still don't know that I would bet on it. If you're Kyle Dubas, you'd love to get, you know, Mitch Marner locked up tomorrow. I think you'd be over the moon with that. If you're Mitch Marner's agent, you're saying, uh, start the number with a nine or we'll talk next year. Yeah. That would honestly be my stance because he has every reason to wait. So, yeah. As much as I'd like this to be resolved soon, I'm not... I don't think it will be and I don't think it has to be. Yeah, unless he has, like I said, a catastrophic injury, the number isn't going down. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, you, you can kind of set... The absolute floor on Marner, barring injury, is like, what, in the mid-60s in points? And that's like the absolute floor. That's what, with, with him not really progressing as a player at all, with bad luck, with basically everything going wrong. Yeah. Right? Like, if he, if he plays every game, I don't see a scenario lower than that. Unless he, like, gets the yips and forgets how pucks work. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just projecting points, um, people generally are a bit too optimistic about what the high-end players get in terms of points right and you see that with like dom lushishin's uh, mm. point projections and uh he's a writer at the athletic who does a lot of this sort of stuff and does it uh for like fantasy hockey and betting purposes as well and his projections are generally are, are quite strong year to year um mm-hmm. but the highest ranked leaf i think is austin matthews he's projected for how many points roughly 87 87 which is a lot of points that's almost 90 points that's basically saying okay this guy's in the top 10 or thereabouts right but projecting someone for 90 points is like utter lunacy for anyone not named Connor mcdavid it's so so difficult to get to that point yeah absolutely i do find it kind of funny you're seeing these like early projections because everyone's getting kind of nuts out of preseason uh but you'll see things where uh, where like you know fans are breaking down their lineups and they're penciling this guy in for 20 goals and that guy in for 15 goals and that guy in for 15 goals because they think, okay, in a good year for that guy, yeah, he could do that. And they may not be wrong that in a good year for that guy, he could do that. But not all of those guys are, for example, going to get first unit power play time at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they can't all get 
unlimited ice time. There was one uh, infamous projection that was talked about in like the depths of the Oilers crap years where they were bad. And someone did a lot of, uh, I won't say sophisticated math, but like they clearly were trying to think about the exercise and they concluded that the Oilers were going to be the best offense of all time because all of their <laughs> players were going to score 40 points. Yeah. And it's like, if you have a fourth liner scoring 40 points, then he's actually scoring at a rate comparable to Connor McDavid because he's doing it in like 10 minutes. So, yeah, it is easy to get carried away with uh, with projections and it's easy to get carried away with preseason because everyone knows it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, after four months where we've had to argue the case on paper... Now we have a little bit of evidence. Yeah. It's like plus minus in junior leagues with prospects where you know it's stupid and you know you shouldn't make an argument based on it and you know you can't really rely on it. But then you're like, but it's what we have. So this guy's good at plus minus and you find yourself quoting it. Yeah. So and, that's and, what the reason And to be Marner has been absolutely electric in the preseason. He's been really, really, really good. I'm honestly wondering if I just forgot like that he could do this. You know, because he's looked so much better than I even expected, and I was excited for him. Like, yeah. He's been a real. He's, he's an unbelievable player, and I think um, this season, I expect to see, I expect him to be more of a play driver in terms of driving Corsi and driving mm-hmm. shot attempts. And that was something he was um, not tremendous at his rookie year, I don't think, uh, at least from all the stats that I've seen, like RAPM and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was better at it last year, uh, but not amazing. And... Just looking at him play, you can definitely see how he would be able to impact the game that way, right? Like, it's kind of surprising when you realize that he hasn't been a driver of shot attempts thus far in his career. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of, that's something that I think is going to change this year, and that's going to add a lot of value to his game. I think I think he's going to be amazing. I, I really do. I yeah. think Marner's a phenomenal player. Uh, it's just, I, I wouldn't bet on 90 points for... for just about anyone, right? I, I guess I said earlier I'd put Martin in 75 to 80, so I'll say on the lower side of that. I expect him to get like 75-ish, 77-ish points, but, you know, it, he, he's he's incredibly good. And I, I feel like I've had to talk down Marner a lot, a lot more than I wanted to because he's such mm-hmm. an amazing player, but I think the hype on him right now is a little bit of an overreaction and a little bit of kind of, I don't know, just preseason optimism. Yeah. And I think that Marner is likable. Marner's the kind of player oh, that absolutely. you want to cheer for. He's electric. He's exciting he to watch. Moving. He never stops moving. He's so fun to watch. Yeah, he, he works hard. Uh, you know, he's just one of those players who, when he's on the ice, things happen. Mm. Uh, really exciting things happen. And it's hard to quantify that quality. And most stars have it to some extent. He has it in spades. Uh, you know, he, he looks like a little kid. And he has, like, still boyish enthusiasm to him. Everything about him makes you want to cheer for him, makes you want him to succeed. And he's a, you know, the good Canadian kid. So I think that maybe he captures the imagination of some writers and some fans in a way that William Nylander, for example, is just not quite going to do. Like putting aside relative talent or point production or whatever. It just, there's something about Marner that is so kind of incredible and exciting that I I think... It's easy to go nuts on him. <laughs> yeah, and Marner's path, this like he he's he's looked steadily more and more and more impressive right throughout all mm-hmm. of last season. And it's easy to think of the narrative of okay, he's figuring out the NHL, he's getting better, like he he's improving on a game by game basis 
uh, right? It's kind of what we talked about before with there's kind of an easy narrative to, la- to last season for Marner where he started off slow and then figured things out and was incredible in the playoffs. And now this is just a continuation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you dig into his stats last year, he was actually pretty much very good the entire season. Yeah. Uh, it's just, he wasn't really rewarded for it in the first half of the season because of the shooting percentage gods. Yeah. And he, he was rewarded for it more in the second half of the season. And, you know, that also coincided with the power play kind of just going absolutely, having their hottest streak in a year full of hot streaks. So, I mean, again, I I expect Marner to be incredible this year, right? He's he's so, so good. Just so much fun to watch. Uh, and he's honestly, his partnership with Tavares is something that I'm going to enjoy watching. And I, I love watching Marner on the penalty kill too. Uh, it's just... He's so aggressive. That's what I love about him. Yeah. He's, re- he's really... I talked about this in, in the PPP Slack, and it, it may be weird to characterize it as such, but he's greedy on the penalty kill. He doesn't mm-hmm. see penalty kill as defending time. He sees it as, oh, cool, there's one less player on the ice. Nice. And, like, no one's getting in my way now. Yeah. Right? I, like I he, played with a guy like that in Beer League. It was, like, a very talented player. Mm-hmm. But he had speed, and he was just, like, a runaway freight train. And he got, like, excited when we took a penalty mm-hmm. because the other team started thinking offense all the time and he was yeah. like I'm gone and as much as like there's very little analogy between beer league and the NHL Marner knows opposing teams are thinking offense and he wants to pounce and carve them up and it's great yeah and I mean I feel like I've brought this example up so many times but like when Brad Marchand and Patrice Bergeron are playing on the penalty kill they have the puck you're like you can see the defenseman's expecting them to just toss it down to their own zone and they, they skate out with it and the defenseman's <laughs> like oh you're playing? <laughs> well, I wasn't. Ex- you're not supposed to do that. Like, come on, yeah. right? It's 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 shocking. It, it it catches people off guard because yeah, they're so focused on okay, he's gonna dump it out, we're gonna regroup, all that sort of thing. But when you're aggressive with that, it, it's it's so much fun to watch. And look, I'm sure at at one point Marner's gonna be overly aggressive on the penalty kill and it's gonna burn him. Yeah, it's guaranteed to happen. But oh, yeah, that, no that's fine. Like, uh, you know, I I trust I trust him to know when to go and know when to stay home. He's going to get burned on that sometimes, but Marner has really good instincts when it comes to that sort of thing. And that's why he's such a good takeaway player as well. Like, mm-hmm. that's why he's so good at forcing turnovers. Um, so, yeah, I, I expect him to stay on the right side of that, generally yeah, speaking. I I, so. You know, I think Nylander's actually has the similar quality where he's... Nylander's very good at, at, at takeaways as well. And mm-hmm. it, he knows kind of when to pressure and when to just kind of hang back. Uh, he's not, like, as manic as Marner in terms of kind of being aggressive and pressuring all the time but he he's, he's kind of a, a crafty player i don't think he gets as much um credit for his ability to force turnovers as he necessarily deserves yeah i, I remember kevin was pointing this out uh, quite a while ago even as early as the rookie season for the big three yeah but that the leafs have several very very good takeaway players uh including the, the big three and even when you look at road takeaways it's still noticeable how good they all are. But you, you look at road takeaways, obviously, too, because there's a certain amount of home rink bias where, like, your home score likes to credit you with a takeaway. Uh, and it is. It's true. It's very exciting uh, to get that kind of quick turn in the play. I mean, my dream is I'm going to do something that I don't think I've ever done before or will do again mm-hmm. and credit the New Jersey Devils as having been exciting at some point. <laughs> but... Uh, in Ilya Kovalchuk's one of his best years, and I remember he had such a kind of character development in his career. Like, he was considered enigmatic and excessively Russian and, like, 
a one-way player or something. Charged with but Russian he went on a to New Jersey, and he was coached by Jacques Lemaire, Jacques Lemaire. And Jacques Lemaire is Satan. I want to be clear about that. Jacques Lemaire sucked the joy out of hockey for a time because he was like the most defensive trap-oriented coach. But he could teach a guy how to play defense. And he taught Ilya Kovalchuk how to play defense. And he started using him on the penalty kill. And Kovalchuk, because he was an extremely talented player, got really, really good at it. And so there was eventually one year where the New Jersey Devils had a 90% penalty kill rate, best in the league, and they scored 15 shorthanded goals. So their net for the whole year on, like, when they were killing penalties was only minus 12. Like, they were almost as dangerous as you were when they were killing a penalty. And my dream is that Marner can... Give us a glimpse of that. I mean, it takes a lot to be as good as, as that team was. That team was extraordinary at killing penalties. But mm-hmm. th- there is something so exciting about having electric quality. You remember last week when I said, I don't think it really matters playing skill pairs on the penalty skill? I was full of shit. Don't listen to me a week ago. <laughs> I've had a total change of heart because Marner scored a shorthanded goal in front of me. It took two preseason games. I am such a cheap date for like one good highlight from Mitch Marner or Nylander or whatever. I'm just yeah. like, you know what? More. I, I, I suffered for so long watching a team where it was basically like a Phil Kessel highlight or nothing. Yeah. And now suddenly I'm spoiled for choice. So. And, I mean, here's the amazing thing we haven't mentioned. The Leafs haven't had their third or fourth best forward for the entire preseason, and they've still been just, like, dominant offensively. Like, and Matthews' yeah. line has, like, visibly, I wouldn't say struggled, but, like, there's been situations where it's like, oh, I wish if they had an enter there, that would not have, that would have turned out different. Right? Like it's... Yeah. Like, our top line right wing right now is Tyler Ennis, who I yeah. think has impressed. But, like, he was a buyout as of several months ago after a really disappointing season for him. Mm-hmm. And, like, we have the prospect of replacing him with one of the most exciting young players in the NHL. Yeah. Like, we, we are going nuts. to replace Tyler Ennis with a guy who was 30th in even strength scoring last year. Yeah, that's pretty good. I think that's pretty good, to be honest. And, and I mean, Matthews and Nylander, and really, I guess this would be true of Matthews and Marner, too, but they, they combine so brilliantly with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nylander's obviously a zone-entry machine and a very, very good passer. Mm-hmm. It, it's just perfectly set up where Matthews can kind of snake in like a shark. I, I was going to say snake in like a shark, which is <laughs> an interesting mix of animal metaphors, but he can, he can just find his way in. He's just kind of lurking for space, right? And mm-hmm. then... He finds it, Nylander finds him, and then, boom, you're done. Yeah, that's, right? that's the ballgame. It, it's it's so such a problematic thing to deal with for, for defenses. So, yeah, like I mean, it, the fact that the Leafs have been this dynamic offensively without one of their best players and one of the best young players in the league, and, and make no mistake, that's what Nylander is. He is absolutely mm-hmm. one of the best young players in the league. Um, he's not obviously like the, the Matthews, McDavid, Eichel, Barzal tier of players, but like, you know, we've gone over this before. He He's very similar to Mitch Marner, right? Mm-hmm. We're adding another Mitch Marner to the lineup, more or less. Yeah, like that. We are spoiled in a way that we haven't been. And I know that like we're waxing rhapsodic and everything here. But sometimes it's like we should really stop and smell the roses about how good this offense is. Because yeah, it's like nothing we've had the privilege of seeing for the Leafs. And, and I'm sure in a week... Unreal. When the Leafs are like outcoursed by Ottawa somehow, but win, <laughs> but win like five one, we'll, we'll be like really annoyed or something. So just remind it's not us, sustainable. Yeah, remind us of this moment where we are very optimistic about the Leafs and 
things are going very well. This is it, though. We see the preseason. We both knew, we both said, like, 20 minutes ago, like, obviously the preseason. Yeah. Can't yeah. take a lot away from it. Like, 20 minutes later, we're like, I think this is the best team ever. <laughs> you know, I think this team is unbeatable. I think they should just give us the cup, like, right now. And maybe for the next yeah. couple years, too. Like, just... I mean, just to be safe. Yeah, yeah. Why waste people's time? Yeah. Um, but actually, okay, so we'll talk about the one cloud over the lease if you can call it mm. that and that's that's Nidander's lack of contract like we've been talking about oh it's gonna be a great one we add him to the lineup um what well, are we gonna add him to the lineup so two weeks ago we said we asked each other you know are you worried about the situation and both of us were like no it'll get resolved and i think both of us said it would probably get resolved before this point before where we are now right yeah within so the now next i guess weeks. we'll ask the question again are you worried nope <laughs> walking on sunshine <laughs> I will say I'm getting closer to the point where I will start getting worried, but mm-hmm. there's a natural incentive, I think, to start um, to start making a move if you're in William Nylander's position. Once the real games start, once you start losing money, frankly, because it's going to start costing him pretty considerable amounts of money, depending yeah, like, on what his eventual contract ends up being. If every day that he goes... 6.5 million, yeah, then it's... Yeah. And uh, back of the envelope, we did this beforehand, but th- like that's going to cost him something like $36,000 a day. And even if you're a millionaire athlete, that starts adding up pretty quickly to an amount of money you're going to regret not having. Yeah. Uh, y- you know, we've noticed that he's represented by Louis Gross, who's the same agent who represented Johnny Gaudreau. Johnny Gaudreau signed on the eve of opening night. I still expect uh, Nylander to be in the opening night lineup or to have his situation resolved by then. If it's not, I still won't really start to worry unless we get like a week into the actual games and he's still not there. And then I'm going to start thinking, okay, this is becoming a bit of a problem. Yeah. Missing the preseason is like, I don't think William Nylander regrets it and Mm -hmm. I don't, think it matters that much you know like they're not that meaningful missing real games and missing real salary is when you start to see evidence that people are really set in their positions i think yeah yeah it's i mean as you said if you're even when you're very rich losing thirty six thousand dollars a day is not something it's not a day you look on fondly you know no and, and when you think about it like let's say nylander hopes to get an additional i don't know 250 grand a year out of Dubis over the course of a six-year contract, right? Um, if he waits like four weeks, right, that he that that money that he's gaining that he hopes to gain from the negotiation is gone. He, he's already yeah. lost it already. Like he would have been better just conceding early on. Yeah. Right? So, um, I think. The fact that the the money adds up so quickly means that he's very much incentivized to sign before the season starts. And mm-hmm. th- there's been talk of whether, so based on a quirk in the in the salary cap, or not a quirk, but just kind of the design of it of, of the CBA, if Nylander signs uh, into the regular season, the first year of his AAV, uh, the first sorry, his first year AAV of his contract will be higher than all subsequent seasons. And that mm-hmm. actually kind of works out well for the Leafs because we have cap space this year, but we won't have as much of it in the future. Now, um, I don't think it makes sense for the Leafs to kind of aim for that. One, because it's negotiating in bad faith, and like that's just something you don't really want to do. You want to maintain relationships with these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, 
two, I think if if you're the Leafs, uh, you want Nylander actually in the lineup, right? It, it's you want you're in the business of winning hockey games, not screwing people over in negotiations, <laughs> right? Nylander helps you win more hockey games, and the Leafs are in a division where seeding is going to matter, and every game matters. Mm-hmm. So even though the Leafs will probably be fine if Nylander misses a couple games here and there, or misses a week, let's say, uh, they'll probably still make the playoffs. But does that put us a little behind the eight ball in terms of keeping up with Boston and Tampa Bay? Yeah, it does. The other thing is, um, if they do get to that point where Nylander misses time, his agent is going to be arguing that he wants his first-year salary to be as low as possible to, to mitigate this fact. So, so that essentially that he loses as little as possible. Right mm-hmm. for for his foregone salary um, because of the holdout, so then that introduces another kind of layer of things to negotiate over. Where there's two sides that are highly incentivized to in opposite directions. The least would want Nylander's first year salary to be as high as possible in that situation. Nylander would want it to be as low as possible in that situation. That's another point of contention. The thing about the uh, the altering cap it also that you've mentioned is that it is uh, significant, and some people have been wondering, okay, is this something that we can exploit? The reality is that Nylander has to be missing quite a lot of time before it makes a, a real difference. Like, if he signs, uh, I, I'm probably misremembering uh, a thread I saw from uh, a Reddit user named Earl is a boss, who is a pretty sharp individual. But but it's something like, unless it's a holdout going to the start of November or something, it's going to be a, under 100k cap hit. Yeah. Which is not enough to make a real difference. So I still think the incentives are all there to get a deal done within the next couple of weeks. I still think it's going to happen. I have a lot of confidence that this is going to get worked out for a six or seven year deal. I still don't think it's going to be a bridge deal either. Although I do recognize that the chance of that starts to go up as this thing goes on. But... Yeah, at this point, I'm still, you know, walking on sunshine, feeling pretty good about Winklander. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and the Leafs have so much uh, of the leverage in the situation. It's hard to see how. It's hard to see how they don't end up with a kind of good settlement from their mm-hmm. point of view. And again, like I think the Goodrow case is instructive here. He signed on the day, as you said, the day before the regular season. I think there's a reason he signed then and not a day into the regular season. Like I, I think at the end of the day, agents represent their clients. I don't think Elander wants to miss game time. So I think push comes to shove, he'll, uh, he'll sign before the season starts. And the Leafs will be yeah. much better off for it. And he will get to play hockey on a pretty stacked team with some great line mates. So I think he'll end up being pretty happy too. Yeah, I'll have a good time. I mean, the reality is, is that I'm sure the thinking in terms of how you instruct your agent, if you're a player, mm-hmm. is get me the best deal possible. And as you approach the start of the season and the other side's position is what it is, you start thinking like, okay, I tried. I, I played my cards. Uh, maybe this is the best deal possible, you know? Mm-hmm. You start thinking, okay, how much more movement do I want to count on now that I'm losing money? At, at what point do I do I take it? Like the incentives are to kind of say, okay, it's time to settle down and make a deal. Yeah, which I, I think is ultimately what's going to happen. And I think the I, Leafs are not going to like hold it against Nylander that he negotiated hard in this case. Like that that's not something adults do. No, like these are all professionals uh, running the Leafs organization. You know, these are executives. 
even Cal Dubas, who's like young, like this is not his first rodeo in terms of like running an organization. Yeah. Uh, he's going to behave like an adult and that that's fine. The truth is, is that if Nylander comes in and slumps, there will be definitely some sort of obnoxious articles and chatter about like, he missed training camp. You gotta wonder if that's affected his season or something like that. Yeah, hundred percent. More likely than not, this is all going to be forgotten in two months. So, yeah, yeah. See? All right, cool. Uh, was there anything else that we wanted to discuss? Um, there was a piece that was raised: is can Nazem Kadri compete for the Selkie? Oh my, yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> we were having a debate about whether we should actually address this on the podcast because, like, at on some level, it's just making fun of bad takes from, like, random people. It, it's fun, but it's like, what purpose does it solve, you know? I want to make a difference in the world <laughs> through podcast. This podcast is for social justice and welfare, damn it. Not yeah, for exactly. mocking people, but it is for mocking people. A bit. Yeah. <laughs> we quickly realized that it... You know, it'd be very hypocritical, considering <laughs> literally one-third of our podcasts are just making fun of bad teams. Yeah. So, I mean, what's that law of headlines where if there's ever a question in the headline, the answer is no? Betteridge's law of headlines. Yeah. yeah. That applies here. Um, no, Nazem Kadri cannot win the Selkie. Or, no. Well, actually, yes, he is technically, he is eligible to win the Selkie because he is a forward in the National Hockey League. And he's yeah, a center, and, which is also just as important. <laughs> but he and will he plays not. in Toronto, yeah, which has just that chance. Uh, my, you know, my favorite factoid is yeah. that Jamie McClement finished sixth <laughs> in Selkie voting one year when he like his whole thing was like I win some faceoffs. So you know what? Uh, I think Nazem Kadri is capable of overachieving in the Selkie vote relative to his actual performance, and I think Nazem Kadri is an excellent player and a really good offensive player. I don't think, you know, he's not going to win the Selkie over Sean Couturier or Patrice Bergeron or Anze Kopitar or Alexander Barkov because defensively he's just not in those guys' class. Yeah. He, he's um, the best of the Leafs, like, defensively. Except maybe Tavares, although that's, like, a contentious issue in of itself. But, like, yeah. best on the Leafs defensively is, you know, that's not a high bar. No. Um, he, the thing is, is that he can play those minutes and not die. Yeah. Like, that was the big selling point, especially when Matthews was, you know, very new to the NHL. And it was like, okay, Kadri can do the sheltering role and not drown. He doesn't have to dazzle in those minutes. Uh, and he did well. Uh, if you look at his usage, actually, um, you know, Micah McCurdy has those new Magnus charts that he's got. Mm -hmm. um, they make Kadri look really good. They do. Like... His his usage was, let's say, unforgiving in terms of, like, he was sent out against, like, the best lines in the NHL, and then they gave him, like, some bailing wire and Leo Komarov, and they were like, you're on your own now, kid. Um, and, you know, and again, he didn't die. Like, <laughs> the fact that he did that in those minutes is remarkable. And then he was part of a great power play unit, and he cleared 30 goals again. He was an important part of that unit as well. Yeah, like, it wasn't like he was a passenger or anything. He, he wasn't the Bozak. No, he was not the Bozak of that unit. So, you know, like, all of that is great. The thing is, is that, like, I am I almost want to be like, no, he can't win the Selkie. But gosh, isn't Nassim Kadri terrific? He, he's a very good player. It's just he's yeah. not going to win the Selkie, which is fine. <laughs> no. Um, and this is the thing. is like, he doesn't really have a really impressive defensive impact. 
He just has enough of one that his own impressive offensive impacts can kind of overachieve it. And you see this with a lot of star players. Like when yeah. we looked at the uh, the top 20 centers list that we did in the summertime, mm-hmm. a lot of those guys are not great defensive players. Yeah, it's like, just, t- they're like so Tyler good offensively. Steven Stamkos. Yeah. Like, you know, Steven Stamkos. This is actually kind of an aside, but Manny uh, Emmanuel Perry had a thing he was talking about, like, rank these players on the Tampa Bay Lightning. And he said, like, Stamkos isn't that far ahead of Yanni Gourd. And I was like, I, I, I think that's... Yeah, I, I don't but, believe that. I mean, the, the thing is, <laughs> Stamkos is also... He's like one of the... He literally bends a power play. Yes. Right? Like, he, <laughs> he is so good on the power play. So, I mean, you can argue that, okay, he's like... Uh, you can put Kucherov for sure is ahead of him. Hedman, you could say, is ahead of him. Hedman's, like, certainly better than Stamkos relative to his peers, right? Like, Hedman's a top mm-hmm. five defenseman in the world. Um, yeah. You could put Point ahead of him. Point's incredible at even strength. But <coughs> uh, Stamkos is amazing on the power play. And I, I actually asked Alan about this. Like, where would you put mm-hmm. Stamkos? And he, he said he would put Stamkos second among Bolt's forwards, you know, just, um, in part because his power play um, impact is, is so notable. And also... Stamkos had, like, a poor year by his standards in terms of shooting. If he, like, mm-hmm. has a strong shooting year, he immediately becomes, like, incredibly valuable again. Like, yeah. one of the most valuable players in the league because he's one of the few guys who can... It's one of the few guys where you see a 15% shooting percentage and go, oh, that's a bit low. Yeah, that's the thing. He's, he's in, like, kind of... Not quite his own universe, but he's in the universe with Ovechkin... He's a better shooter than Ovechkin in terms of shooting percentage, actually. Yeah. But, you know, he's in a class with, like, Patrick Line. He's also, I mean, how many guys have scored 60 goals in this century? It's him and Ovechkin, end of list. Yeah. Like, he, I can buy that he's fallen off a little bit with his injuries, mm-hmm. but I think he's still, like, really, really, really good. And he's invented himself more, reinvented himself more as a, as a, of a passer now, which is mm-hmm. very impressive considering he, he wasn't really considered one early, early into his no, career. No, he was very shot heavy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I hope you have Nikita Kucherov next to you, right? But I don't know. I, I want it. I haven't looked at this too deeply. Um, I know his shot rate has declined a little bit over the course of the last couple of years, but mm-hmm. I kind of I want I want to see one more season where his shot rate is like low and he's not converting as many goals as he used to or shots to goals as he used to. Before I say that Steven Stamkos is really and truly falling off as a player, because remember the in twenty sixteen seventeen. He had, like, a ridiculous start to the year. Like, absolutely mind-boggling. Oh, and yeah. then he got injured. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, sucked. you know, it, it, it's still there, I think. I, I, I think, in general, I'm, I'm kind of slow to react to players both falling off and coming up. Mm-hmm. Right? So, the good part of that is when a good player has a bad year, I tend not to overreact. But when, like, when players start to get washed up, you know... I, I'm slower on the uptake to realize that than most people. So, you know, swings and yeah, bounds. yeah, it, it comes and goes. You know, speaking of guys who like I probably overreacted to though, mm-hmm. I really thought Alex Ovechkin was kind of like before last season. I was like, this is the beginning of the decline now. Yeah, like, I, I, I was, was like, convinced okay, he, that he was just a power play demon. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I thought the same thing at one point. But then, like, I mean, he proved us wrong, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody went out, won the rocket Richard again, you know. Yeah. Um, but so, so, yeah, the lesson is that we can be wrong about stuff, but we usually aren't, is the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we hope so. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, with Ovechkin, his even strength scoring is, is still... Actually, I, I can check this right now. I think his even strength scoring is like not elite anymore. Um, I should say point scoring. His even strength goal scoring still very much is elite. Um, yeah. And he is still just absolutely like destroy, destroyer of worlds on the power play. But, I mean... Given that goals are generally speaking like probably more valuable than assists, if we're being honest, yeah, he's still an undeniably ridiculously strong player, right? And then I'll just straight up say it now that we're like buried an hour into the podcast where like only millennial nerds are listening to us, but yeah. like Alex Ovechkin is the best pure goal scorer of all time. Yeah. So yeah, there. Like when you just <laughs> when you just for era, it, yeah, you know, what he's done is absolutely incredible. Yeah, and over the, over the last three years, Ovechkin's has primary points. Um, commensurate like with a with an average first liner but like the thing is the vast majority of them are goals yeah so, so hmm. yeah and then on the power play again uh very incredibly good and then the vast majority of his contribution there is goals and then Ovechkin is also one of the few guys i think where you can't at all really quantify his impact on the power play with just his points because he also he's like steph curry right he has gravity mm-hmm. it, it, it legitimately does open things up for other players in a way that most uh even elite players can't say they do that. Yeah, watching the the uh, the Capitals power play is funny sometimes when they get into like their kind of extreme formation, mm-hmm. where it's just him lurking at the top of the circles. Yeah, and like you'll see like the entire rest of the Capitals power play is on the opposite side of the of the zone, mm-hmm. and you'll sometimes even see like the other um, like the defending penalty kill forward kind of like antsily looking back and forth being like i know if the puck gets over to him i'm dead yeah (laughs) but like i i'm afraid to leave this guy alone so he really does visibly have gravity in a way that uh that you don't always get to see in hockey because it's such a fluid game Mm -hmm. um i do wonder if we're going to see that somewhat on the leafs power play actually but they have so many weapons that it's almost like who do you kind of sag off yeah Uh, with with Ovechkin, the other thing is, like, he is by far the most dangerous option, right? In part because of his own extreme brilliance, but also because kind of everyone else on that power play, uh, they're they're very good players, but they don't have, like, the extreme standout shot that Ovechkin does nearly to the same degree. Not nearly to the same degree. Um, Whereas the Leafs, it's more egalitarian, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Like, the the threats are more spread out. Yeah. I mean, Austin Matthews is... uh interestingly has not been as good as he could be on the power play um mm-hmm. but you would think that he's sort of the really dangerous threat there by yeah. the way and this is just an aside but like if austin matthews and that power play unit are as good as they have ever reason to be and he keeps up his even spring of scoring matthews is going to win the richard this year yeah like, i he, honestly he is, believe he's a real shot at it um yeah Actually, while we're talking about things that we're like sort of wrong about, that power play, I thought it was really interesting at first. Because I was, when I saw that power play, um, like formation, before mm-hmm. seeing it on the ice, I'm like, okay, this is this is kind of interesting. Because they replaced a, uh, a left shot, or sorry, a right shot in Bozak with a left shot in Matthews. And mm-hmm. obviously Matthews is a far better player than Bozak. But at Bozak's specific role, which was cleaning up garbage and recycling the puck, um, Bozak's hit, good at that. his handedness kind of made makes it harder for Matthews to do that particular job mm-hmm. from the left flank. But uh, what the Leafs have done is essentially kind of, they've changed the way that the power play has set up in some ways. It seems to be, at least so far, like more fluid. Before it was kind of formulaic, but you really couldn't stop it. 
um, where it would kind of primarily just run through Marner, right? And now mm-hmm. Marner still is very much the primary playmaker on this on this power play, but the rest of the players are, are kind of very fluid, and at points it's going to kind of run through Matthews, and Matthews and Riley will, will swap, and there, there's going to be some interchanging there. Um, mm-hmm. at, at one point they kind of operated from behind the net with Marner and Matthews playing catch behind the net and yeah. setting up Kadri. That was against Montreal. So they, it seems like they have a lot of different looks, and... Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how how they manage that because you you don't want to relegate Matthews to just being the garbage man. That's such a waste of his duties. At the same time, you want the mm-hmm. puck in Marner's hands as much as possible. So it's an interesting um, and tougher than it looks job for Leafs coaches to plan things out in such a way that they could both be engaged and maximize their skill sets. And obviously, very early returns thus far, but they've they've done a good job of it. Where you know moving people around and do, doing all that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, last year there was a lot of discussion about Matthews not being on the first power play unit, but the first power play unit was so good, mm-hmm. there was no rational argument for breaking it up, as we've discussed. I, I do like the idea, the more I think about it, of Austin Matthews playing maybe a little bit closer to contact mm-hmm. because he's one of the best players, I would say, in the NHL at puck control. Like, it's very yeah. hard to get it off him, even if he appears to be kind of surrounded. Like, he makes his own space. Uh, he makes moves that occasionally embarrass people. And he can get a shot off in a very confined amount of ice. So, I think you are, in a sense, maximizing him. If you're using him in a situation where other players would be constrained, he's a threat there. I mean, he's a threat anywhere that most players aren't, but he's a real threat there just because it's so hard to constrain him. So that's something that I'm going to be watching out for going forward, certainly to see if he can kind of make some use of that. Yeah. Why not? It's just going to be, <laughs> it's going to be a deadly group. <laughs> it is. The other thing you kind of have to worry about with this, I mean, it seems clear that this, that Matthews is on the first unit in part because, you know, it, he asked to be. Mm-hmm. Right, like from what we, from what has been reported, it, it seems, and because you know when he's the face of your franchise, there exerts some there, that exerts some pressure on yeah. you in order to, you know, play him in a meaning a very meaningful role as part of your top unit power play. Um, but there's also a cost to taking him off the second unit power play, right? So yeah. even if we expect that the first unit power play is going to soak up more time than the first unit power play did last year, the second unit power play does have to play, and in losing Matthews. Um, they don't really have a lot else anymore. When Nylander gets back, he'll be a part of that. But it's sort of like I don't I don't love that power play setup. Uh, they did score two goals against Detroit, but one was a Jake Gardner point shot, which is not you know a terribly efficient shot. One was Patrick Marlowe on the doorstep after a Josh Levo slapper that went wide bounced right to him. Again, it's like you're you're not designing your power play with that in mind. Yeah, so I mean, it's not what you want. Yeah, so that is kind of a hidden cost of putting Matthews on the first unit power play. Um, and what that means is that the first unit power play kind of has to be as good as last year's power play in order for mm-hmm. it to be kind of justifiable because you have weakened uh, the second group. But, I mean, it's not a terrible bet to, to do just that. Yeah, uh, I would agree there. I mean, <laughs> I do think, you know, it's going to feel a bit like the William Nylander show possibly. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, the shots that Nylander takes are not that efficient on a power play, right? They're, they're like shots from the top of the circle. 
No. He is, you know, he's his own entry machine. So I'm kind of thinking that if you have to have someone get kind of left behind on the second unit, Mm -hmm. the second unit probably comes out because the first unit got cleared out of the zone. Yeah. And so someone has to go and get it back there. Yeah. Which, you know, there's some argument that Nylander is a good choice to do that. Um, It's too bad for him. It's, you know, his, his point totals are probably not going to zoom up the way that they might. Um, they might not zoom zoom up at all, really. No, it's it's possible for, for them to be flat, and like the way things are kind of shaping up now, it may just end up being that the point gap between Marner and Nylander gets pretty wide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it starts approaching twenty points, and people, <laughs> we may be on like this last lonely island, being like, but the talent gap isn't actually, you know, but. Yeah. Um, you know, all of that stuff, this is very much first world problems because we just have so much talent that it overflows from one unit into two. Yeah, I mean, um, if you wanted to get Nylander on that unit somehow, you'd, you'd probably have to get rid of Kadri, which is not at all fair to Kadri considering how good he's been on the power play. Like, in that case, mm-hmm. you would move Matthews to Kadri's position and put Nylander over on the left flank. But, like, mm-hmm. again, that's not really fair to Kadri. Kadri has been phenomenal. And I think when you give Kadri kind of awful minutes at even strength you know where he it, it's tough sledding I think part of keeping him engaged in that role is saying hey you know you're being rewarded with this power play time not because not because you're doing this work but because you're good at it right and um I think that that goes a long way to keeping him engaged right you, you want to empower your employees and empower your players yeah and, and managing that is, yeah man, <laughs> managing that is is tough yeah right and especially for someone like Kadri who has always been an offensive player and is a player who gets happy when he scores goals, right? Like, that's kind of what drives him, uh, at least from what we've seen. It's good to put him in a situation where he can do that. Yeah. Especially when it comes you know, at no detriment to the team, because he's very, very good in, their, in his role. Yeah, like, it's not like you're doing this as a charity case either. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, putting your players into a position, in a position to succeed, in the most obvious level, it's just make the team good. But... There's definitely uh, a personality management thing going on with Mike Babcock. It's why Matthews is probably on the first unit. It's it's true in a lot of the comments we've seen, kind of cycling back around to some of the roster decisions. Um, so, so maybe just as one last little point, talking about things that Mike Babcock has said uh, in the course of this week. We've talked about he looks like he's done with Connor Carrick. He sounded a little bit more impressed with Josh Levo than I've heard him be, although that's not saying much. And he had some nice things to see to say about uh, Dmitry Timoshov, which I thought was kind of interesting, as maybe some nice thoughts before the kid goes down to the AHL to hopefully have a big year. Yeah. Um, just something to kind of keep an eye on there. And again, I think it's mostly motivational. But for someone who was perceived to have struggled last year, including by us, uh, it is interesting when the coach says, you know, hey, I think that this guy's shaping up nice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, reading into what Babcock says is always kind of interesting. and It's like reading tea leaves, right? There's always some element yeah. of truth and some element of some performative aspect of it as well. Yeah. He's uh, he's a sharp guy. That's the, that's the one thing I'll say is, you know, like he's, he has a very good, you know, kind of Saskatoon, uh, down-home Oshocks kind of manner. Um, where he's kind of gruff and everything. That guy lives and breathes hockey to an extent that even we find hard to understand. Yeah. And 
uh, and he's also, you know, a psychologist in his own way. And so there's so much of what he does that the more you think about it is is calculated that uh, it is very interesting to keep an eye on. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, so I think that is actually it now. Um, unless you have anything else that you want to discuss, I wanted to discuss the um, the, the Magnus charts that you that you brought up before from Micah McCurdy on HockeyViz, but uh, I'll talk about that some other time. Uh, they, they're very interesting. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit in the future about how different leaks look by that measure. But um, for now, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, nothing coming up, but as usual, I should write something soon, so I justify my existence on the website, so just keep your eyes open, and then I'll turn something out. Yeah, say, say, me as well, to be honest. Um, so you can find <laughs> all of mine and Fuleman's non-existent work, as of right now, on pensionfanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at RV and at AT Fuleman. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next week.